Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. We often begin the program by reminding you that we only talk about politics so we can explore society, and we explore society so we can get down deep into the principles and the people in this country who actually live them. To get to that kind of conversation, today we're going to do the short circuit, and we're going to go straight to principles. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Well, it's time to think again about what we think we know when it comes to navigating difficult conversations. And someone who has spent a great deal of time studying just exactly how people do that and do it better, Todd Davis, former chief people officer and senior consultant at Franklin Franklin Covey, joins us on the line. And uh, Todd, welcome to, to welcome to the show. Thank you, Boyd. Appreciate the opportunity of being here again. Uh, You've got an extraordinary uh, module uh, talking about navigating difficult conversations. How do you turn that tension into progress? And uh, give us a little bit of the backstory. A lot of people use this phrase a lot. How are we going to navigate this difficult conversation? You can insert family, you can insert politics, insert business, insert neighborhood or community. Uh, Give us the the baseline in terms of where we should begin from a principle standpoint in thinking about those conversations. Yeah, great question. So the the obvious uh, uh, inclination that we all have is to avoid them. (laughs) As you mentioned, I was the chief people officer for 18 years, and so a large part of my job was to to have these difficult conversations. And and even that being such a huge part of my role, it was just, gosh, maybe if we wait, this will go away. And uh, they don't go away. They only get worse. And so so we step into this, and again, I'm no smarter than the next person, but because my role – uh, Until in, in this, I, I have uh, thousands, if not more than that, <laughs> of reps on this. But, but it's really starting out with courage and consideration, and mm-hmm. thinking, okay, what what is the purpose of this? What do I need? Why am I? Why am I? Why do I need to have this conversation? And what does the other person need? You know, yeah. if it's a if it's performance problem, what what do I need? Well, I need this person on our team to perform better. But what do they need? Well, they need to have honest feedback, but also know at the same time that I'm that I'm concerned in, and want only the best for them. So it's it's this balance, this mindset to start out with of having you know both the courage we need, which is really hard when we're having a difficult conversation, and then the, the consideration for the other per- yeah, the other person. Yeah, I, I love that, and I love the fact that uh, all of uh, all of your work has been so focused on how do we get. The, the skill set, the tool set, the mindset to make all of these things happen. And one of the things I think is really important is how you tee it up in terms of framework and the fact that we all have to remember if we're having a difficult conversation, it means that we care deeply about something. And it means the other person probably cares deeply about something as well. And that's actually something we should celebrate rather than avoid. You, boy, you just hit on the key, the key principle there. Something's at stake. Or, or many things are at stake, but but to acknowledge that something's at stake, you know, the person's performance, their reputation, my reputation, what our future relationship will look. And so if we can look at what's at stake here and and then realize, oh, the emotions that are going to come up during this conversation are because there's something important to, to one or both of us. 
and and then we can make it less about the person and more about the topic at hand. So it's a really really good point you bring up. Yeah. And so as you look at going through and starting to to navigate that, because again, once we decide we're going to lean in uh, to the difficult conversation mm-hmm. rather than avoid, and we always say, you know, you can hope it goes away. Hope's great, but hope is not a strategy. Uh, walk us through some <laughs> of the strategies that we should be leaning into uh, so that we can yeah. take those those crucial conversations, those important. Uh, even tense conversations and turn them into something that leads us towards progress. Yeah. So once we've, once we've established, okay, why are we having the conversation? Is it, why is it so important? Why am I feeling so anxious about it? Once we get real clear on that, because I, I mentioned that because occasionally, not often, occasionally I'll work with a leader who will say, well, I, I want to have this because they need to know how I feel. Okay. And, and why? Well, because I just want them to know how mad I was. Okay, but what's your what's your purpose? What's the intent? And and that doesn't happen often, but sometimes it's just because we want to feel good. <laughs> right. And so, but if we can clarify, no, I really want them to succeed. I want them to improve their performance, or I want us to come to an agreement on this thing that we're we're at odds with. If it's with another colleague, once we got to that part, then it's all about our intent. And what I have found in my in my eighteen years as chief people officer, and even now as a senior consultant. If your intent is pure, meaning healthy, like I, I, I want something good for both of us, you can, in fact, say almost anything to someone. If you begin a conversation with saying, hey, Boyd, I want you – this is going to be a little bit difficult, this conversation, but I want you to know my only intent is to help us get on the same page or to help you be the very best whatever role you're in that you can be. Please know that that's my only intent. And once you say that and if you really mean it, you can get to the hard stuff. Yeah, that's oh, that's so vital because it, it changes the whole dynamic because suddenly it's not an us, them, me, you uh, kind of back and forth battle where we're just butting heads, but we can actually get into a, a different kind of space. You talk about some of the, the tactics and strategies around these principles and uh, one set that I just love uh, that I think we all need to deploy much more often is just to pause and then be be quick to observe uh, I think that observing is such a, a lost art in the world today. But describe that for our listeners and as to why that's so important. Yeah, another key point you bring up. Many of us hesitate. We think if we pause and just listen or observe and, like we say, don't judge, that, that the person's going to think we're agreeing with them. And that it's not true. Mm. I know it might feel like it's not true if we will just listen. And, and I love the word suspend because suspend, if we suspend our point of view or our emotions long enough to really hear the other person, we can get the real issues out there on the table. And so to your point, pause, we, we, we call it pause, don't panic. <laughs> because when, when emotions start showing up, we, we sometimes panic, but pause, don't panic, observe and don't judge. And then ask, don't, don't just assume you know the answer. Uh, and and if, we can, if we can spend that time just listening to understand, not to, not to agree or disagree, we can start to then open the door to get to the heart of the real issue or what really what really needs to happen. Or if we're in a leadership position, we can open the door to then really say, you know, I, I know this is hard. You do a lot of things really great. This is really a problem. We've got to get this fixed. And you can say those things if you've really taken time to understand the person. And like I said earlier, made sure they know your only intention is to help them be even more successful than there are than they've already been. Yeah, no question. So I just just to review for our, our listeners, pause, don't panic, observe, don't judge. That suspend, I think, is such a beautiful imagery to mm-hmm. be at there. And then ask, don't assume. Uh, and when you ask, so it's amazing what you can do with a question. I think you can do more with a question than you can a statement, especially in a heated disagreement. Uh, you can actually yeah. share your perspective with a hey, have we considered this or what would happen if we tried that? 
Uh, give us one thing just in our last minute here uh, in terms of things that we ought to be thinking differently about uh, individually, in our organizations, in society, as we try to navigate those difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, the, the, that's a great, great way to frame that. Uh, I'll make sure I say something really important here. But, but just remember, just remember. while there may be a few really, truly bad, evil people out there, most people are good. Most people want to do the right thing, want to be a part of something that's successful. And, and clearly, we may have a person in the wrong seat on the bus, but usually it's more uh, a, a case of not people that they previously talked to not having the courage to, to speak up and say, gosh, I really want to bring something to your attention. So if we start with the mindset of everyone has something to offer and I'm doing this, I, I'm having this conversation to help them see what they may not be seeing. And even though they may feel resentment to me for a little bit, if I'm, if I continue and my, my intent is sincere, they're going to know that I'm, I'm looking out for their best interest. And that's why I'm initiating the conversation instead of avoiding it. Ah, I love it. Todd Davis is a former chief people officer, senior consultant at Franklin Covey. Franklin Covey, this is a great module, navigating difficult conversations, turn tension into progress. Uh, Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to have you back and uh, we may even send you to Washington, D.C. to help out with a few things as well. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Boyd. A pleasure talking to you. All right. Again, that's uh, Todd Davis from Franklin Covey. And I, I think it's so important. We're going to apply this through the rest of the show today because these same things of navigating these difficult conversations apply to the Supreme Court, to agencies within our government, to politics, to elected officials, to businesses, to our communities, right to the kitchen table. So stay with us. Much more Inside Sources coming up next. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. And as we uh, march our way towards one more round of the shutdown showdown, uh, we started the program today uh, with Todd Davis from Franklin Covey talking about how do you navigate difficult conversations. And uh, I think we may need to send Todd back to D.C. Uh, for some of these conversations. And the interesting thing that we want to get to as we go through the program today is, again, getting back to the principles of, of how do you do these things? Uh, it's not controlling behavior uh, by way of government or by mandate. It's living these principles. And one of the interesting things that was pointed out in a fantastic piece in Politico today by our friend Jennifer Habercorn, uh, who's the White House reporter for Politico, and she actually writes on the relationship between the Biden administration and Capitol Hill. And uh, today uh, she talked about the fact that uh, President Biden and Speaker of the House Johnson really don't have a relationship. And so that's where we want to begin. Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Boyd. Uh, fantastic piece today. And uh, you must have been reading our minds today because we wanted to get to these <laughs> principles. And it is the fact that, uh, I mean, D.C. in general has become so transactional uh, of late. Mm -hmm. uh, but dig us into this as it relates to President Biden and Speaker of the House Johnson and how that might impact our current version of the shutdown showdown. Yeah, you know, um, it, it, the I, where we got started with this was, you know, is – you know, think back to relationships of a long time ago. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan is the telltale example of, you know, bipartisanship, people working across the aisle, people of the Speaker of the House, the president of different parties, and they worked together where they could and they squared off where they 
couldn't. And, you know, that doesn't really exist anymore. There are very few bipartisan relationships. It's really um, unusual to see a Republican and Democrat getting together and, and being friends and yet having political differences. But you look here at President Biden and Speaker Johnson. And granted, Speaker Johnson is is very new on the scene. Uh, no one expected him to be the Speaker of the House. But there's no relationship that is formed with between him and the president. And the Speaker has been trying to get a one-on-one meeting with the president. The White House has so far refused that invitation. Um, but we are going to see them sit down this week with the other congressional leaders And we're just four days away from another potential government shutdown. And the fact that this, you know, top Republican, top Democrat, um, you don't have a relationship, don't even have like back channel, um, you know, uh, Mm. top aides who can talk to each other really doesn't bode well for um, trying to bridge that divide and keeping the government funded beyond Friday. Yeah. And I think it's so fascinating. I love the way you point this out in your piece that uh, it, it really is one of the hallmarks of President Biden's career has been both mm-hmm. the relationship side on the on the outward facing, but also the really interconnected back channels uh, that he's been able to navigate over his time in the Senate as vice president. Uh, and so this is really a, an aberration, I think, in terms of how he approaches things. Uh, any hope on the horizon in terms of just the two of them getting in the room uh, beyond just the uh, we always call it the law firm of uh, Schumer, <laughs> McConnell, Johnson and Jeffries. Uh, any any, any <laughs> chance of, <laughs> of, the, of the real connection happening there? You know, it's not promising because Johnson, you know, has asked for this one on one meeting and Biden, um, you know, he made a comment to reporters last week saying, sure, I'd be happy to meet if he has anything to say. And then his aides followed up and, and insinuated that Johnson wasn't working in good faith. He's like um, his uh the president's press secretary um, said something along the lines of if he is um, demonstrating good faith, he would hold a vote. Um, And, you know, they've just traded barbs over the past week. We saw President Biden at a fundraiser refer to congressional Republicans as segregationists, liking them to um, Strom Thurmond. Uh, And Johnson responded on Twitter, uh, I should say X, formerly known as Twitter, saying, you know, Biden was dealing uh, from the uh, race card from the bottom of the deck. So there's just a lot of that going on. So it's hard to see um, any kind of uh, uh, back-channeling good communication forming. But um, I should say Biden has been at this for a very long time. Um, He has a good relationship with Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate. So he certainly knows how to do this. I think it's a question, too, of how long Mike Johnson remains in his role. You know, we know that his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, was there for such a short period of time. It is legitimate to question, you know, is this um, a relationship worth forming? Yeah, and uh, and I, I'm so glad you raised that because there is sort of again when you're dealing with things in terms of transactions, if uh, if it doesn't look like that uh, person's going to be around for long, then you just take whatever transactions you get and you you move on to whoever's next. Uh, and I think that's become part of uh, the dysfunction there. Um, anything that you're seeing or anything you're watching for, particularly going into tomorrow's meeting. Uh, that might indicate where we're headed as we uh, kind of barrel our way once again uh, towards the showdown Friday? Yeah, you know, because um, uh, this will be a pretty high-profile meeting, I I think it's really doubtful that they're going to come out of this and say, you know, finish it up, guys. Like, we can go home and just get this done. Um, So, you know, I would certainly expect that coming out of this meeting, both sides are going to fall into their usual camps. 
of talking points, you know, um, uh, Democrats saying, you, uh, you know, Republicans need to just fund the government. Republicans um, uh, is saying um, Democrats just need to get on board with our plan to fund the government. So it's it, I it, if they come out of this meeting saying those talking points, I don't think that's a sign that there's certainly going to be a shutdown. Um, you know, after a meeting like this is typically staff kind of behind the scenes will um, try to push the ball forward uh, working across the aisle. Um, but certainly if if this meeting goes really south and, um, you know, there's uh, throwing glasses afterward, then that's, um, you know, it's harder to see that staff back channeling happen. Yeah. happening um so so we'll certainly know a bit about how things are going after this meeting but it's not going to be conclusive yeah for sure and uh, jennifer last question for you um because i think this is something that again another part of the lost art back there in dc is is the art of the relationship back channel uh from your mm-hmm. from your inside sources there as you talk to people behind the scenes uh, do you see any players uh without having to name names any players that are going to step up and play that role of relationship in the back channel pieces, which again are so important to the front channel things actually getting something done. You know, the person that I keep my eye on in this moment is Shalanda Young. She's the president's budget director, um, and she's very well liked on Capitol Hill. She um, used to uh, be a staffer on Capitol Hill for the for the Democrats, um, and she's from Louisiana, which is where Mike Johnson is from as well. Um, and she has um, relationships with Steve Scalise, one of the uh, the number two Republican in the House, who's also from Louisiana. Um, and uh, given that you know this this topic is her wheelhouse, the president's budget, and that she has relationships on Capitol Hill. She's someone that I'm kind of eyeing as a potential bridge between the two camps. Yeah. Oh, that is fantastic. And you're not going to hear that anywhere else, folks. That's why we have Jennifer on this show. (laughs) That is great. Very astute observation. And that is, I I think Shalanda is the one who could actually navigate all of that. And uh, you connected all the dots to Scalise, to the speaker, to the president, to the budget, um, and that's how these things, the staffers get things done, and uh, that's just the way we go about it. You make it, it sound so easy, Boyd. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, if we can just get this done before Friday or even Thursday, I'd be happy. That'd be great. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. Jennifer Haberkorn, White House reporter for Politico, uh, always focused on that relationship between the Biden administration, Capitol Hill. It's great writing. It's fantastic reporting. It's great behind-the-scenes pieces. Check out her piece at Politico today as well. Jennifer, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. All right. Again, that's Jay, uh, Jennifer Haberkorn, uh, and she's the best. And I hope you just noticed how she connected all the dots behind the scenes because the relationship on the front end doesn't currently exist between President Biden and Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. And so if you don't have that, that's a tough place to negotiate from because you're just dealing with transactions and that becomes very political very fast. So you have to go back channel. And so who's the back channel person who isn't just doing transactions and politics? It's someone who can build the relationships. And so those are some important things to watch as we work our way towards Friday. Uh, And we have to get a deal done before we get to another round of the shutdown showdown. We'll step aside for some bottom of the hour news. More inside sources coming up next on KSL News Radio. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio.
Well, no matter where you fall in your perspective on immigration and border security, it is an integral part of an American conversation. And it actually has been from the very beginning. Uh, Most people don't recognize or remember that in the Declaration of Independence, uh, once they started to get to the list of grievances of what was going wrong or what they wanted changed, the importance of immigration was way before they got to things like taxation without representation. So immigration has always mattered in this country. And right now we have a system uh, that is flagging and failing uh, so many And so it's a time for a different kind of conversation about how we address that. How do we make sure we maintain the dignity of human beings and the integrity of our borders and sovereignty? Uh, What kinds of conversations should we be getting to? Uh, Well, someone who's constantly engaged in that kind of thinking, Fiona Harrigan, of course, is associate editor at Reason, reason reason.com. She primarily covers immigration and foreign policy. And uh, Fiona, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So today we want to get to your piece talking about a really crucial part of this whole conversation, and that is the green card process. Just tee that up for our listeners. Yeah, and the source of this is a really important and eye-opening report from the Cato Institute that came out recently. Um, And this report covers a lot of the dysfunction in the process that delegates green cards. Um, And at a basic level, a green card is what lets someone live and work in the U.S. as a permanent resident and eventually provides a pathway to citizenship. So this is a really important step for immigrants who want to live here long term. Uh, The U.S. gives out a certain number of green cards across several different categories every single year. Um, But uh, several of those categories are capped, which means only a certain number can be given out every year. Um, Demand far outweighs supply. Um, which leads to a backlog. And that's what this Cato report really gets into. In the late 90s, there were 10 million pending applications in the green card uh, backlog, but that backlog has now tripled, more than tripled, to 34.7 million applications today. Uh, But despite that historic demand for green cards, only about 1.1 million green cards will be given out this year, which is about 3% of applicants. So this demand is a really, really good thing. It signals that there are a lot of people, whether they're employment-based applicants or family-based applicants, who want to build lives here and contribute to the economy. Um, but our failure to meet it is, is a really debilitating thing for those goals. Uh, there's a lot of growth and a lot of progress that's being left on the table. Yeah, no question about that. And I think it's so interesting when you look at uh, a, a lot of the rules around this, and you pointed this out in your piece and from the Cato report, uh, looking at some of these Caps. Describe for us these caps. One, I I keep trying to get my head around the fact that we have 34 plus million uh, applications that are just pending uh, and only about a million of those can go through. Some of that is based on this idea of the, the caps. Explain that for us. Right. And a lot of these caps uh, kind of come in as as ways to ostensibly protect Americans, uh, American workers. That's a really big one. So only so many foreign employees can come in in a given year. Um, and adjust to green cards. But, you know, if you think about it, we have so many open jobs and there's pretty low unemployment right now. So a lot of the reasoning behind these caps just doesn't make sense. Same for uh, family-based applicants. Why are we denying people the opportunity to reunify with their families? And a lot of what those backlogs create is these 
insane wait times for people. Um, in the Cato report, one of the most striking uh, factoids is that Indians who are uh, half of the applicants in employer-sponsored categories, they might wait up to a century for a green card. So in effect, there are people who are dying long before they ever get a chance to secure permanent residency here. It's really mind-boggling. Yeah, and uh, you, you also pointed out in the in the piece that fewer than 1% who want to move permanently to the U.S., uh, and they want to do it legally, uh, less than one percent are going to actually be able to do it legally. And so, again, we create all these perverse incentives uh, that cause people to come here illegally. Uh, But again, a lot of these are not the things that we normally think about. You talk about this large number from India uh, and what they would add to our communities and to our businesses and to the economy. Uh, And some of them, uh, I mean, a century is a pretty long time to wait for a green card. Yeah, and I will add that a lot of these people who want to adjust to green cards, they already live here. They're just on temporary work visas waiting for a green card to become available, uh, which means that ultimately they have to renew these temporary visas and they don't have any assurance that they're going to be here long term. You know, if it's employment based, they might get laid off and they might have to go home. And essentially, you know, their work for the past decade or two has been for nothing. They don't have any way to stay here permanently. So these these things are things that really, uh, you know, limit the economy's growth. And they also push people to be more willing to immigrate illegally, right? Because if the legal system is inaccessible, people are going to look for the easier option. And in so many cases, it is much easier to immigrate illegally than it is to immigrate here legally. Yeah. And Fiona, I'm so glad you pointed out the fact that so many of these people are here in the country. They've come on work visas. So they're they're part of our communities already. They're part of our businesses already. And then they have to go through the mental gymnastics and the legal hurdles and hoops uh, that just seem to go on and on forever. Uh, And again, none of that is, is good for anybody. Exactly. And we should recognize that this demand for green cards, this demand for a way to stay in the country permanently is a really good thing that we're lucky to have so much interest in. You know, there's so much interest around the world in becoming an American and becoming a contributor to American communities and economies. Uh, and our, our failure to recognize that is is really only to our disadvantage. Yeah. And as you pointed out in the piece, uh, that all of this, getting the system right, benefits everybody, including American citizens, including the American economy, uh, and getting it right. Uh, so as you look at the the path forward, uh, what are you keeping your eye on in terms of any spaces where there might be some movement uh, politically and congressionally uh, that might help to start changing the dynamic in this process? You know, immigration these days is so directly tied to uh, border security and border conversations that I I find that there's not a lot of room for conversations about incremental reform and and little things around the margins that people can agree on uh, across the aisle. So that's been disappointing, but I'm hoping that as people see the effects of Uh, a lethargic immigration system, a lethargic legal immigration system, uh, that they come together and and kind of settle on these common sense reforms, these things that can help the economy, that can help bring more high-skilled, highly educated workers here, family members, refugees. It just extends to so many aspects of who we bring in and how we design our system. Um, So I'm hoping that as, as people recognize these things that they can kind of settle on reforms but um, it's an uphill battle for sure it is and I think you hit the the nail right on the head there Fiona in terms of so much of it has been tied 
to border security and illegal immigration uh, that we're often missing the point. This is one of those that always astounded me in when I was there as a chief of staff that everybody agrees. Everybody knows this is a good thing. <laughs> Legal immigration is a good thing for this country. And if we could set the other political stuff uh, on the side, we could get, as you described it, Fiona, common sense, rational, reasonable things uh, that do both of those things that ensure the dignity of human beings and our fellow travelers and the integrity uh, of our borders and our laws. Those are compatible principles, and I think we can we can get there. Uh, Fiona, great, great piece today. Fiona Harrigan, of course, associate editor at Reason, Reason.com. Uh, Fiona, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Again, that's Fiona Harrigan from Reason. You need to check out her piece on the green card process. It's utterly failing, uh, and uh, she goes through it in just such a rational, reasonable kind of way that Statistics are astounding. 34.7 million pending applications. These are people who have come here on work visas legally. The system is broken. It needs to be fixed. We need to disconnect it from the political rhetoric and get to the principle and policy solutions that will take us right back to where we started this country on immigration. We'll be right back. Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as always. And as we've been going through the day today, the Supreme Court has been hearing some pretty interesting, pretty fascinating cases uh, from Texas and Florida about social media. And obviously, we've had some of those same conversations here in the state of Utah. The Supreme Court is hearing cases from Texas and Florida concerning the social media regulations, their opposition, the social media platforms. Uh, the issue uh, has been posed under protecting the First Amendment. So how far can state regulation go before it becomes censorship? Uh, reports from uh, D.C. today are saying that the Supreme Court, uh, based on the questioning of the justices, uh, seems to be leaning away from the state's cases in favor uh, of the First Amendment as opposed to state regulators being able to drive some of those things. I think there's a deeper conversation here as well. And that is we we keep falling back to how do we control the behavior as opposed to how do we change what we're worried about? And if we're forever trying to move the needle to control the behavior, uh, it's not going to change the behavior. Uh, And whether it's misinformation or disinformation, whether it's things that are vulgar or outrageous or outlandish, Uh, All of that uh, continues to go through, and I don't think there's a path of regulatory regimes that can actually fix that. I think it's a different conversation inside our own homes and neighborhoods, uh, schoolrooms and classrooms and other places that uh, are actually going to drive that in the end. And so the interesting thing, and and several reports out uh, from the Washington Post, from the New York Times, uh, noting that the justices from really across the ideological spectrum Uh, appear likely to prevent Texas and Florida from being able to implement laws that restrict social media giants from removing certain political or controversial posts on their platforms. Uh, Even as uh, the justices, uh, again, across the political spectrum, seem to express concern about the the power that these platforms have in public debate. Uh, I think one of the big challenges and one of the big tests is what is it that a private company can do versus what a state or what a federal government can do when it comes to speech. And I I think you can see that in some of the questioning 
that was raised. Uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, said that whether the government or social media companies have the power to decide which voices are heard on a particular platform. Uh, He said the First Amendment always puts a thumb on the scale when that question is asked, and it's always on the side of private companies. Uh, The First Amendment, Roberts said, uh, prohibits government, prohibits government, doesn't prohibit private entities from censoring speech. And so that distinction, I think, is really important. And in both the Florida uh, and the Texas cases, that really is the question uh, in terms of what can a state government do as it relates to those social media platforms. I also thought it was interesting that uh, Justice Samuel Alito, uh, when he was uh, questioning uh, some of those representing uh, NetChoice, who represents the tech industry, uh, really tried to get into defining some of the terms, uh, asking whether uh, a term like content moderation, uh, what that really meant. Uh, Did content moderation just mean censorship? Or did content moderation mean editorial discretion? Those are very different things. Uh, and uh, Justice Alito uh, and uh, some of those responding uh, for net choice made the comment that, that look, when the government does that, it can be censorship. Content, quote, content moderation uh, really can be a form of censorship when applied by a government. Uh, when it's done by a private entity, then it's a different conversation. Does that become editorial control? Does that become brand protection? There's a host of things that can get into there. So I think it's a fascinating uh, conversation that we're going to continue to watch play out back in Washington, D.C. And uh, between the idea of free speech uh, and social media platforms. And and so that's going to be the interesting part of that conversation. And, And the thing that I keep coming back to is if all we're trying to do is control behavior, uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't change behavior. And if we're always looking to Washington to solve the problem or to fix it, that's that's rarely going to, if ever, going to work. But when we talk about the principles, we help people understand the why behind those kinds of things, then things do start to change. And it actually leads us into this uh, space that I have really been noodling on over the weekend And that is this whole addiction we have in our society to chaos. There's kind of this nihilism. Uh, It's sort of the old NASCAR thing that you show up at a a NASCAR race uh, in hopes that a really epic crash is going to happen. And sadly, our modern politics has become the same. Social media has become the same thing. Cable news nationally has become the same thing. What's the big crash? What's the big performative politics moment Uh, that's going to change the game. And suddenly we have this need for chaos. And sadly, this leads us into a dangerous space. Because when we get addicted to chaos, again, no government control, no platform control by a social media company is going to control it. Because the the goalposts will keep moving. uh, And the scale of what is outrageous will continue to slide. But the real danger is what happens within us individually and as a society. When we become addicted to the chaos, then we become far more willing to participate in the chaos. And social media tends to be a place where that happens all day long, every day long. 
because you get something and because it maybe says something about someone you dislike politically, you're more likely to share it regardless of whether it's true or not. Just because it's epic. Wow, watch this. This will cause these people to go crazy. I'm going to own those liberals. I'm going to own those conservatives. I'm going to make their hair on fire. I'm going to get their blood to boil. Watch this. And then you post something which may not even have a scintilla of truth to it, but you're doing it because you want to see the chaos. And then here's where we end. The ending of that is we become so past feeling, and the science on this is so solid that when you have that chaos fed up to you over and over and over again, it stops being outrageous and you stop perceiving it as chaos and you get to that space where you are past feeling. And then chaos is really in charge. And then no amount of government control, no amount of government regulation, no amount of a social media platform regulation is going to change the game. So this ever-increasing need for chaos uh, is a significant problem. And we cannot look to states or to the federal government or even to the social media platforms to fix it for us. It starts with all of us being committed to a different kind of conversation. And when I say us, I mean all of us individually. And then it goes to community. It goes to businesses. It goes to the media. It goes to journalism. It goes to political people, elected officials. It goes up and down, left to right. Everybody's responsible. And when we're all responsible, we have a different kind of conversation. And we'll begin to eliminate the addiction to chaos and the dopamine hits that we all get when we turn on cable news or we go to doom scroll through our social media feed. And no regulatory regime, no behavioral controls is going to fix that. That will only change when we start to talk about the principles and the relationships and the connections that actually matter. So fascinating stuff going on at the Supreme Court today. I don't think controlling the behavior will change the behavior. I think that's going to start as a cottage industry in all of our communities What are you going to do about that today? All right, we'll step aside for some top of the hour news. When we come back, hour number two of Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station. Inside Sources. Inside, Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson. On Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio. Well, the headlines from over the weekend. Were of course, that former President Donald Trump won the state of South Carolina, Republican primary there. Uh, But we want to get past the headline of that. What do the numbers tell us underneath all of that? And then, of course, the campaign shifts to Michigan and then on to Super Tuesday. 
Michigan has been a swing state in the last several presidential cycles. So the question rolling into what comes next starting tomorrow in Michigan is what happens on the Republican side? And does President Biden, for some reason, have a little bit of something to worry about in Michigan? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Well, as we recap a little bit of what happened over the weekend, get underneath the headlines of the win. Of course, the former president uh, won by about 20 points, uh, beating former Ambassador Nikki Haley. About 60-40 was the way that broke down. The Haley campaign did exceed expectations. They were down about 35 points rolling into the primary contest in South Carolina. So she beat expectations there, and she has vowed to continue on the conversation and the debate uh, as it uh, rolls towards Super Tuesday. So we want to break that down underneath the headlines. What are the things we should be watching and following in the days ahead? So let's start with Nikki Haley's speech after Uh, her South Carolina results came in. I know 40% is not 50%, but I also know 40% is not some tiny group. There are huge numbers of voters in our Republican primaries who are saying they want an alternative. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. I'm a woman of my word. That's Nikki Haley uh, following the results coming in in South Carolina. Uh, And I I think that's an important point. Forty percent is not nothing. Forty percent is a significant and it does show a little bit of the split inside of the Republican Party. I think it's interesting to note that if you went to the general election in South Carolina in 2016 and in 2020, Uh, Then candidate Donald Trump in 2016 defeated Hillary Clinton there by about 55, 56 percent of the vote. In 2020, former president beat current president about the same, 55, 56 percent. But that's an entire statewide race for the presidency. And the fact that uh, the former president could only get to 59 percent in just a Republican primary Uh, shows that there is a little bit of an undercurrent there that is dissatisfied, is not rallying around the person who is ahead. I think that means you you keep going. You keep having the debate and you keep the contest rolling along. Uh, Nikki Haley also emphasized how early we are in the process and contrasted herself to both President Biden and former President Trump. South Carolina has spoken. We're the fourth state to do so. In the next 10 days, Another 21 states and territories will speak. They have the right to a real choice. And I have a duty to give them that choice. We can't afford four more years of Biden's failures or Trump's lack of focus. Uh, So a lot of focus on the chaos uh, from both the former president and the current president. Uh, And I think that's an interesting debate that will start to play out in an important state like Michigan, which, again, is always the one of those swing states that will determine who ultimately ends up in the White House in November. I think you're going to hear a lot from the Nikki Haley campaign in the days ahead uh, about is one thing for the former president to win primaries in the spring. But the only thing that matters is you have to be able to win a general election on the first Tuesday of November in the fall. Now, the former president spoke after his win in South Carolina, and he said he thinks the Republican Party 
is united. But now there's a spirit that I have never seen. We ran two great races, but there's never been, ever, there's never been a spirit like this. And I just want to say that I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. So interesting statement from the former president in a 60-40 win in South Carolina. Of course, it was a 50-43-44 race in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, And so I don't know that that means uh, ultimate unanimity coming out of the Republicans. I think there are plenty who are still keeping their eye towards the fall and towards November. And those potential matchups are also pretty stark and pretty interesting under the surface. Uh, Currently, you have basically a toss-up between the former and the current president, if that were the head-to-head matchup on the first Tuesday of November. But Nikki Haley versus the current president, Joe Biden, uh, she wins by double digits. And so that's interesting. Now, whether that would hold up through the course, you have to play the game and and play it out. So Nikki Haley sort of has the reverse challenge uh, of not uh, just trying to win in the fall. It's clear she can win in the fall. The question is, can she win enough in the spring to become the nominee? And so that will be the debate and that will be the test. And it will be interesting to see the case that she makes, including coming here to Utah in a couple of days, uh, and what the message is in terms of why she's there and what comes next in terms of the crucial conversation for the country. That will be the specific piece. Now, I want to go to the Democratic side of the aisle, because while most people are giving a little bit of a yawn in terms of the primary contests for President Biden. He's clearly going to be the nominee for the Democrats, but he is bumping up against some really interesting headwinds when it comes to Michigan. And while he's not going to be challenged in terms of losing uh, tomorrow in Michigan, there is a message being sent from people in in Michigan, including uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib, who released a video urging Michigan voters to vote uncommitted in the Democratic primary tomorrow. It is also important to create a voting block, something that is a bullhorn to say enough is enough. We don't want a country that supports wars and bombs and destruction. We want to support life. We want to stand up for every single life killed in Gaza. This is the way you can raise our voices. Don't make us even more invisible. Right now, we feel completely neglected and just unseen by our government. If you want us to be louder, then come here and vote uncommitted. So a call to vote uncommitted rather than voting for President Biden tomorrow by the Democrats. Uh, And again, someone from his own party in Congress, uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib, uh, making that call, again, primarily focused on uh, the Biden administration's support for Israel and what is happening in Gaza from the humanitarian standpoint. So that's fascinating. Uh, the president also has some other headwinds, and that is some promises not kept in the state of Michigan. Last week, I spoke with political reporter uh, Christine Mui about the semiconductor industry in Michigan, large chip producer uh, in Michigan, Hemlock Semiconductors. Uh, was promised a big tax break uh, touted in the Chips and Science Act from the Biden administration. And now it appears that they are not going to be eligible for those tax breaks. And so you've got places that are sitting vacant in Michigan uh, with promises unkept. That's a big question still is how exactly will these chip investments in different states, not just Michigan, how will those play into Biden's messaging ahead of the election? 
And so it's not clear yet if this is a huge issue for the Democrats. But it is notable that, yes, these are his allies in a swing state. So that swing state of Michigan. So the president has some headwinds that, again, will not impact him winning tomorrow uh, in Michigan. But if those people choose to stay home in November, then that swing state of Michigan swings a different direction. So I think both Republicans and Democrats have a lot to worry about in the state of Michigan. We'll watch how that all plays out. And we'll also continue to watch the crucial conversations, which are coming right here to the state of Utah uh, with candidate Nikki Haley coming here on Wednesday, uh, all part of that crucial conversation. We'll continue that here on Inside Sources coming up next. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. And of course, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, AI, artificial intelligence. It's pervading every corner of culture, every aspect of business, and our personal lives. And by nature, it just keeps growing. The more we interact with it, the more uh, dominant and, pre- and prevalent it becomes. The question is, what are we teaching it? Because AI, of course, is not unbiased. It knows what it is told. And usually that's what we tell it, by the way. Uh, and so as the, the programming begins to interact in this space of politics and public discourse, it's more important than ever to stay curious and ask better questions about our information and where it's really coming from. As I am Mohammed, cybersecurity uh, researcher at uh, North Dakota State University's Department of Cybersecurity, uh, great piece at thehill.com talking about how AI's bias could have an impact on the 2024 election cycle. And uh, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, and so just describe for us a little bit about how uh, AI it continues to evolve, especially when it comes to our political conversations, and what are those questions we should be asking about it as it continues to grow and in influence? Yeah, I recently published an interesting article on the Hill News that is all in the perspective of uh, elections. Uh, so first of all, the first thing we must know is that AI was designed to be neutral. It was designed to be objective. And but this is what we all are thinking, that it is neutral, it is not biased, but the results are not in the favor of this evidence. What we are seeing is that AI is pushing the biased ideology. Yeah, this can be one reason, because AI, the models, for instance, ChatGPT, Google Bard, and other models, they are trained on on data and everything they produce is based on that data that can be books internet resources text news media and articles so uh, my first perspective that i try to explain is that we should be aware that it is biased and now we pursue from that for the second evidence that this biased narrative can be used by anyone because AI is public, and anyone can create uh, election campaigns, fake content, and spread these campaigns through social media platforms. Uh, You might remember uh, a fake arrest photograph of Biden that was spread all over the Internet that was 
uh, that was really crazy. So what about the false audios? What about the false videos, forged identities that we can spread with the use of a social media platform? So uh, this is what I try to explain and cover in this perspective. Yeah, and I think it's so important for us uh, to to recognize that it really is more of a, an amplification of whatever content it is fed uh, than it is anything else. And so if it's being fed information from a biased perspective, then that's just going to be amplified and extended, and then it reinforces itself as sort of a vicious circle uh, as opposed to a virtuous cycle in terms of getting to truth. Uh, so as as you look at this, as you've done your uh, research, uh, what is it that as consumers, what do we need to be careful of, especially as we go into a pretty contentious election cycle? Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, first, when I started researching on this, I was really shocked to identify that there are so many reputable journals and websites that have cited these articles in which they show and even prove in some instances that uh, these AI models are biased. So first thing, we need to be aware that these are biased. And second thing, we have to deter, we have to counter these threats, and we have to come up with a solution. So in my article, I also cited uh, two of the major sources. One is Springer Journal of Public Choice, that is a reputable journal with, uh, with a lot of citations. And they prove that the ideology of chair GBT is aligned in the left side of political spectrum. And they, they prove this using various techniques and tactics. And they finally concluded that the AI is specifically the chatbot, uh, which is chair GBT, is democratic biased. Mm. Similarly, another study that I quoted is from MIT, Institute of uh, Manchester Institute of Technology. They also claim that uh, this can also be introduced, the biasness from the IT heads. They can push their narrative. Mm. So this is something interesting that we need to know. And yeah. then we have to comfort them. Yeah, fascinating stuff. It's a, it's a great piece. You can check that out at thehill.com. Zaya Mohammed is a cybersecurity researcher at North Dakota State University's Department of Cybersecurity. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Great piece on The Hill. And again, you can check that out at thehill.com. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a really important one. The, the article is so fascinating uh, in the context of, look, w- what you put in is what you're going to get out. And usually it's going to get amplified and magnified as it goes through and then gets uh, reinforced and repeated and reinforced and repeated again. Uh, and so we all have to just be very aware uh, of what we're consuming and where it's coming from. And just because you get something from a chat bot, uh, chat uh, GPT or whatever it may be, uh, you have to be careful because you may think, oh, it's it's coming through AI, so it's going to be neutral. Uh, it's not. The AI language models are not neutral, and they're not objective. Uh, they reflect the biases, the ideologies of the data that they're trained on and the people who design and use them. Uh, and so you can see that this can become a pretty vicious cycle pretty fast and can get us very far away from the truth, regardless of how you feel about political ideology. The reality is, is that the way those AI language models function and work, uh, they are not neutral. They're not neutral. 
uh, and they're not objective. And so, again, it can be based on the data and the ideologies of the data that they're trained on. Uh, as uh, Professor Muhammad pointed out, you know, if it's a series of books or articles or videos, uh, all of those things that are being scooped up and sucked in and, and assimilated by AI, uh, if they're all coming from one particular kind of source or one pro- pro- political persuasion, uh, then that's what they're going to spit back out. And then that's what will get propagated across the Internet. So you just have to be careful. You always have to check your sources. You always have to stay curious. If it sounds like it's not quite there, it's probably not quite there. Uh, And you have to keep asking questions. You have to stay curious. You have to be willing to go to that next level. Go upstream in terms of the source. Where is that coming from and why? Uh, Is there a bias? Is there a motivation? Is there someone trying to persuade you to do something or reject something? Uh, Those are all things that we have to do as consumers of the information. The worst thing we can do is become passive and just let it keep coming on in and then validating it with our clicks and likes and as we scroll through uh, and swipe. Uh, So all of those things, I think, are, are really critical parts of the conversation. No easy answers to any of it because it's so hard to detect. As Professor Muhammad pointed out to us, uh, you know, you start adding in to the AI database, deep fakes, uh, uh, photos that have been altered, uh, things that are just clearly not even true, but they've been exploited and repeated over and over on the internet and shared and liked and passed on, uh, then it just perpetuates. And so you can't, it's not as easy as just saying, oh, well, this is coming from AI. So of course it's got to be unbiased uh, and neutral. Uh, It's far from that. Uh, And so that puts much more of a test on each one of us to make sure we're sticking to the truth and doing the hard work and heavy lifting uh, to actually get to the truth. Uh, It's never as easy as having it served up for you by an AI platform. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside for some bottom of the hour news. When we come back, more Inside Sources. We'll go to a very fascinating, unexpected conversation between justices of the Supreme Court from opposite ends of the political spectrum to give you some insight behind the scenes of what those conversations at the Supreme Court actually look like and sound like and why they actually might be a good model for the rest of us. We'll be right back. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. There was an important conversation that took place during the governor's gathering in Washington, D.C. last week, and it was a conversation between two members of the United States Supreme Court. Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Amy Coney Barrett sat down for a conversation mediated by friend of the show, former D.C. Circuit Court Judge uh, Thomas Griffith. The center of the conversation was around civility and politics and how we navigate disagreement. The Supreme Court, of course, regularly deals with the very center of the center of some of the most contentious issues our country faces. And how each of the justices approach their job and their role in interpreting the law and applying it, uh, as well as their theories about the legal system and the different ideas about how to interpret uh, what Congress has done in terms of the laws or what the executive branch has done. Uh, and why and how and who's overreached and who's within the realm. Uh, the question really is the 
the element of the Supreme Court has become so politically hot. And we've talked about this on the show before. I, I think a lot of the reasons why uh, the Supreme Court has become such a contentious political space is because Congress continues to abdicate its authority and not do its job. And it abdicates it to the executive branch. And so then the administration, whether Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. Uh, both have done this for many, many years. Uh, they will take the power that Congress cedes to them and they'll do things by executive order or by rule within an agency. And when that happens, somebody in America files a lawsuit because they think they shouldn't be able to do that. That should be Congress's job. And then it works its way through the courts and ultimately ends up at the Supreme Court. And that's why so often we see these contentious hearings uh, around Supreme Court justice nominees. This is why those uh, elections for president are often centered on who's going to get to appoint someone to the Supreme Court. The interesting thing is this used to be a non-political thing. Uh, I've pointed out on this program before. Uh, one Utah has uh, been on the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Sutherland. And Justice Sutherland was actually nominated to the Supreme Court while he was away in England giving a speech. And before the sun set on the day that he was nominated, he was confirmed by a unanimous vote in the United States Senate. Uh, we're a long way from that. Even back to Sandra Day O'Connor, which was a 97-0 vote for her confirmation. Uh, and now it's become purely political. But there's reasons for that. And sometimes I think that gives us a false perception of what's happening on the court, that these justices wear red and blue robes as opposed to black, that they're part of political parties and systems and establishments as opposed to being judges who sit there to apply and interpret the law. Now, Judge Griffith gave uh, some introductory comments to the audience and talked about the purpose of this conversation. Take a listen. I would like the American people to get an inside view into how the federal courts do their business. For 15 years, I sat on the D.C. Circuit. I wish the American people could see what I saw. Dedicated people, passionate disagreements, but all done based on reasoned arguments, civility, and respect. And I, my bet is that after you hear this, you're going to come away thinking at least two things. The Supreme Court is an impressive institution. The second one, you're going to be surprised to hear how well they get along, even though they disagree passionately about issues. So that was the beginning of the conversation. And uh, we always love to hear from Judge Griffith and his insight into how all of this works. And uh, he was instrumental in really creating this behind the scenes look and conversation uh, between two justices that probably disagree on a lot of things philosophically when it comes to applying the law, uh, but have a lot in common when it comes to the conversations they have uh, behind closed doors. So let's start with Justice Amy Coney Barrett. She stressed the importance of civility when navigating those difficult conversations. We're in that conference room and it's just the nine of us. When you're in the flesh and you're having very difficult conversations, you can't just get up and storm away from your computer screen and you can't just walk away and you give one another you know, the benefit of the doubt, you give one another, um, you assume the best, as my mother used to say to me and now I say to my kids, you assume the best of the other person and it makes those difficult conversations much easier to have because you know, we are a pluralistic society, that's what the First Amendment protects, our First Amendment freedoms. 
And if we can't survive by tolerating differences and learning to compromise and learning to allow one another to express other views, we're going to sink. We won't be able to get anything done as a country. That was Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And actually, that tied right back into where we started the show today with Todd Davis from Franklin Covey talking about how do we navigate those difficult conversations. And it starts with that kind of respect and assuming the best of intentions from the other person. Now, for her part, Justice Sonia Sotomayor drew on the legacy of the late conservative justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, and her strategy of personal politics to bring people together and to actually get things done. Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981, when she was appointed to the court, many of you may or may not know that she had been uh, Arizona's Senate leader. And she was renowned for being a politician who got things done. And she got them, things done by bringing together both sides of the aisle. She would have, I understand, weekly parties at her house. She would insist on uh, lunches together, on other activities together, in the belief that if people got to know each other as people, they would be able to transact business, A, more efficiently, but B, with more open minds. And she turned out to be right, but she introduced a very different ethos on our court, that being collegial with each other was critical. Justice Sotomayor went on to talk about the modern application. I think this is the crucial part. Uh, this application of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's legacy on the court and finding, discovering ways to get along with each other in order to go back to that founding principle of how do we get the work done for the American people. We still have disagreements on the court, and we still have fundamental disagreements in how you approach issues, and we don't compromise on those things. But there are ways to take the edge off the disagreement, like narrowing an opinion, deciding to leave a question that's not before you for another case. There are so many, many things that you can do to bring the temperature down and to have you functioning together as a group to getting something done that has a benefit in the law. And so for me, collegiality is at the center of our ability to work together, where when we disagree, our pens are sharp, but on a personal level, we never translate that into our relationships with one another. So many crucial lessons there from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, talking about how you get through that, how you navigate it. Uh, I loved how Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Justice Barrett, talked about how when you get in the room, you can't just walk away. You can't just push away from your screen or, you know, put some crazy emoji on there or some meme and then walk away and call it good. You have to stay in the room and keep going. Justice Sotomayor suggested that a lot of times what they will do is they will take the edge off. So they'll try to reduce the temperature of the debate or the conversation. Sometimes they'll narrow the scope. I love that. So rather than trying to do a big, sweeping, very contentious ruling, they might just narrow it and narrow the decision to deal with something just very laser-focused, very specific. Uh, these are really important things. And uh, as uh, Justice Sotomayor said, uh, keeping the pen sharp on their opinions, but keeping the relations sharp is the key. We're going to stay with this conversation. Stick around. More Inside Sources coming up next.
Get deeper insights on the news from inside sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as it always is. I am Boyd Matheson, and uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we spent the last segment of the show going through uh, just a delightful conversation between two Supreme Court justices, Amy Coney Barrett and Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, They have very different philosophies and perspectives when it comes to their job on the Supreme Court and how they interpret the Constitution and apply the law. But they had an important conversation with our friend, uh, Judge uh, Thomas Griffith, back in Washington, D.C., as part of the Governor's Association meetings last week. Uh, And they gave some really great insight into why the Supreme Court is actually a great model for how we can have better conversations in the country. And I know at first blush, you think, wait a minute, that's where all the division is. All the hot button issues are, are before the Supreme Court. And while that's true, the reason most of those things are before the court is because Congress has failed to do its job or the executive branch is overreached. So usually they're fixing things, and that's really not supposed to be their job. They're not supposed to fix what Congress did or didn't do or did poorly, nor what the executive branch did or didn't do, uh, either by executive order or by agency overreach. Uh, But the interesting thing to me is they have a process, uh, and that process matters and is very instructive for all of us in approaching contentious issues. So let's go back to this conversation. Justice Amy Coney Barrett spoke on the differences and the important difference and distinction between our political system and the process, the process of the Supreme Court in analyzing and discussing crucial issues. We don't have press conferences um, and that sort of thing. So really, the product of our work is the opinion. If you want to know what the court's reasoning is, you have to look at the opinion because it explains the decision. Last year, there was the student loan case, and I joined the chief's majority opinion, and Justice Sotomayor joined Justice Kagan's dissent. There was a vigorous debate in the country about the student loan forgiveness program, but the opinion didn't mirror that debate. It wasn't about whether loan forgiveness is a good thing or a bad thing or a desirable thing or not. It was about the scope of a statute. So that's really important because we so often get lost in the political discussion of all of these things that we don't go back to the process, the principles, and the policies that are the center of it all. And that's what we have to get back to. Now, I want to go to her counterpart on this panel, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. uh, And this is really telling. I want you to listen really closely to this. Justice Sotomayor talked about the damage that political parties have had on the reputation and perception of the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court works. I think the worst thing that's happened to the judiciary is political parties. We don't come into this work as a Republican or a Democrat. We don't even come to it as an originalist or a plain text. You come into it as a judge who believes that our job is to find the best answer to the legal questions that the court is presented with. And so I think that's sacred to almost all of us. And remember, thankfully for us, presidents don't last that long, right? There's eight years. <laughs> so for us to be beholden to one of them is a little crazy, you right. know? No, seriously, there, there is built into the system a protection, which is lifetime appointment, that should give us the freedom to grow as we grow in the job as well. 
I love that perspective from Justice Sonia Sotomayor uh, that it's not what we think. It's so easy for us to say, oh, well, you know, that justice was appointed by President Trump or President Obama or President Bush or President Biden, and that somehow they have an allegiance to that president or to that political party that put them on the bench. Uh, And it just doesn't work that way. I love the fact that Justice Sotomayor said, isn't it great? that presidents only last a maximum of eight years. Uh, So there can't be any allegiance there. It has to be to the law. It has to be to the job of being a justice on the Supreme Court. And I think that's a a crucial part of it. And it's so easy to lose that. And I think Justice Sotomayor was absolutely right that part of the big hit to the reputation and perception of the Supreme Court is because of political parties and because Both Republicans and Democrats have decided that rather than try to persuade and influence, the best way to do things is to file a lawsuit and then let it work its way through the courts and ultimately end up at the Supreme Court. And that's why things seem so politically contentious on the court. But I love how both of these justices pointed out that they have rigorous debate. They have great disagreements, that they uh, sharpen their pens, uh, but they don't get to personal attacks. Justice Barrett said, we don't call for a press conference to call out those that we disagreed with on the last case or on a current ruling or something that's presently before the court. Uh, They get together. Uh, They go to one another's homes for dinner. (laughs) They have lunch together. Uh, They meet with just the justices as they go through some of these processes Uh, that make sure that they have a relationship, not just another transaction. And and that's why I I think our our friend uh, Justice Thomas, uh, or excuse me, Justice Griffith, uh, is so right in saying that, look, there is a model in all of this for the rest of the nation and that the court can show us how the process can lead us to a better conversation even when it comes to politics because we can do it just a little bit different. And so while I think it's crucial that each of the branches of government do their job and do it well, because when they don't do it well, or they abdicate their authority, or they punt on their job, then all we're left with is political rancor and political rhetoric that is all centered in power and has nothing to do with the principles and the policies that are before the court or before the Congress, or sitting in front of the president in the Oval Office. And that's the discussion we have to get to. So I applaud both Justices uh, Sotomayor and uh, Justice Barrett uh, for their role in a great conversation with Judge Thomas Griffith last week, a great model for all of us to think through uh, as we look at how can we get to the better conversation of principle uh, in this country as opposed to just more politics. Well, that wraps it up for us on Inside Sources today here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson. Thanks for joining us today. And as always, as you go out into the world today, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference.
KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios, this is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station.